This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast. In this episode, is Net Zero Ambitions. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by KPMG's Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. BP has turned all heads in the industry by stating that they will be a net zero company by 2050 or sooner. Regina Mayer, KPMG's global and U.S. head of energy, connected with Susan Dio, the first female president and chairman of BP America, on April 8, 2020, to discuss the specifics behind BP's bold ambition. So, Susan, in mid-February this year, the BP Global CEO, Bernard Looney, made some bold statements about the future of BP. He stated that the company will focus on, quote, reimagining energy and, quote, reinventing BP. What does that mean from your perspective? Well, um, it is it is a bold look forward. It's actually a very exciting look forward. But, you know, he's very clear that BP is setting out to be a net zero company by 2050 or sooner. Uh, but also, um, we're going to help the world to get there. We think it's the right thing to do for, for people and for our planet. So we're reinventing BP for a low carbon world with the fundamental reorganization of the company. And the other thing he highlighted is that we're committed to performing while we transform. So uh, Bernard laid out 10 aims. Um, five aims is to get BP to net zero by 2050 or sooner and five more to help the world reach net zero. I won't go through all 10, but um, we intend to be net zero on an absolute basis on all the carbon in our upstream production. And we aim to cut the carbon intensity of our products in half by 2050 or sooner. And we'll be scaling up low carbon businesses, products, and services. The other thing that I'll point out is the new ambition includes ceasing corporate reputation advertising and redirecting those resources to promoting net zero policies, including carbon policy. So it's a pretty, I mean, it leans into the, uh, the dual challenge, and um, I'm very excited about the prospects. So what's different and what's the same? I mean, are fossil fuels still a part of the mix sort of post-2050 or, or are you completely providing a different set of products in this low-carbon environment? You know, Bernard has been very clear that, that what this means for us is that we'll be increasingly focusing our investments on the highest quality barrels to drive returns in cash flow. Um, and with that, you can expect oil and gas production to decline gradually over, over time. So does that mean we'll be producing and refining hydrocarbons in 2050? I would say yes, very likely. But I think it also means that we'll pro- be producing and refining less of them by 2050. Any residual hydrocarbons will be decarbonized. You know, it has mm-hmm. to be in a world that serious about net zero. Right, right. 
And what are the what are you seeing some of your the other energy companies doing in responding? Like look forward ten or twenty years. How do you think the overall industry looks? Are a lot of folks following in your direction? Are you leading the path or do you see different outcomes for different companies? Well, I mean, I do, with all, all of our interactions, um, I do think we all realize that we're all in this together. And, um, you know, the industry has weathered some, some big shifts before. And, you know, for BP, we're a very resilient company. And so we're confident in our future. Um, you know, I'm not going to project 10 years out. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that, well, last week the IEA said about 5 million barrels of oil produced worldwide each day is not fetching a high enough price to cover the cost of extraction. I think we're starting to see, um, you know, shifts in um, investments, um, policy advocacy, um, and transparency across the industry. Right. I like that. We're all in this together. So segueing a bit, this is the first full week in April 2020, and you can't help but comment on the world that we're living, living in, the midst of a COVID-19 pandemic coupled with an oil price war, you know, all of which just together created this incredibly challenging environment for us in the energy sector. Let's start by talking about COVID-19. What has BP done so far to protect its employees, and how are you all managing your operations in this new environment? Yeah, what an unprecedented time. Um, I, Indeed. You know, I don't think we ever imagined something like this. So, you know, for the company, we're approaching this through a lens of, of people, the communities, and the financial health of the organization. And you asked about our people, you know, health and safety of our employees is priority number one. So everywhere that we can, um, our employees are working from home, including our trading operations. We took this very seriously very early. Um, in the U.S., we've waived all the out-of-pocket costs related to testing for COVID-19 uh, for employees that are in the BP medical plan. And then we've also waived all telemedicine copays until at least June 4th. Um, you know, from our operations, we're shifting, uh, we're changing our shift patterns to make social distancing easier, restricting workplace access, we're increasing testing, and, and we're enabling safe isolation and evacuation of any suspected cases. I think one of the really challenging areas is in our retail sites. Um, so we're, we've been boosting precautions to protect both the staff and the customers. Um, we're increasing cleaning. We're providing personal protective equipment for staff. We're installing screens. And we're implementing social distancing in our stores. And then all that also kind of wraps up into, you know, how people are faring through this crisis. So we're offering psychological support in a lot of ways, just recognizing it's also a mental health challenge as well as a, a you know, physical health threat. We're also giving back to our community as a priority. And um, we're, we've donated PPE. We've made a material donation to the World Health Organization and across the globe, we've been providing um, 
fuel vouchers to first-line responders. So we're giving back to our communities at the same time. That's terrific. And it is fascinating to me how the definition of the front line has changed so radically. The healthcare professionals, it's retail providers and essential services like gas stations and, the, and grocery stores. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, what about you? Absolutely. How are you adapting? What's your lesson learned from working from home? Oh, my gosh. Um, so, it, you know, my commute went from an hour across Houston to, you know, 10 <laughs> seconds. Uh, yeah. down the hallway, um, and, I, and I was talking to some colleagues. So I'm working from home. Um, I'm doing everything via either video or, or audio. I'm checking in on a very routine basis with the folks that work for me. Um, I, I sit on the um, executive support team uh, that's a global team and also our country support team. So we've put structures in place. Um, you know, for us to enable the right conversations. I'm trying to take breaks, uh, make myself get out from behind the screen, like step outside um, in a safe way and, and draw some boundaries between work and, and personal life. So um, it's challenging. It really is. And I think um, it was a hard-hitting message when I sent a note to our U.S. employees that we were extending work from home until at least May 15th. And I did have a lot oh, wow. of um, feedback on that note. Um, so, you know, we're just trying to keep in touch with folks and, and support our people as much as we can. Right, right. Now, stepping outside, I think, is key. Sunshine, fresh air, there's something about taking a break from your screen. Well, clearly, our industry has is cyclical. We've been through lots of ups and downs, and you, we are resilient, and BP is, has demonstrated it's incredibly resilient. Um, are there lessons that you've learned in your long career with BP that will help us weather this storm or can help us better respond to this crisis? Well, I'm, you know, this really is an unprecedented situation, and so we're, we're really focusing on what we can control, which is rebalancing sources and uses of cash. Um, you know, Brian Gilvari, our CFO, was on CNBC, and, and he did emphasize that we're starting from a much stronger financial position than we did the last time we saw these sorts of moves on the oil price. And, you know, we have a lot of firepower within the corporation to deal with what we think is going to unfold over the next 18 months. So um, we have a progressive dividend, and we're going to be managing um, the company so that we can protect the dividend and our credit rating, uh, which is um, really important to us. Um, I do think that the industry will come out of this, and I know BP will come out of this um, much stronger, I believe that this way of working, um, we're going to be looking to, to cut costs even further, utilize technology, be more digital. And I think when this is over, I think the industry will be very strong. That's great. That's uh, very encouraging. So one topic I wanted to cover with you, Susan, is the topic of climate change. And it is tied to Bernard's um, 
very bold ambition that he stated before this crisis really unfolded. But there are varying schools of thought as to what this might do to the climate change agenda. Right? Some say we're learning that these changes in behavior can have meaningful impacts on our carbon emissions and the and the environment. Right? We, you, you and I are no longer driving an hour with commutes. I haven't filled my gas tank in over three weeks. Um, so that's sort of one side of it. Another side of it, though, says it goes on to the back burner because fossil fuels are so cheap that it pushes the agenda out. You know, what are your thoughts on how this affects the climate change agenda going forward? Well, you know, I do think we in Houston learned a lot about um, telecommuting and what is possible during Hurricane Harvey. And so I, I do think that... Um, the nature of work may change. Um, I, I think that, you know, we, we've telecommuted and adapted um, digital from a standpoint of, you know, is work what you do or where you do it. So I do think there will be some long-term changes. With that, though, I want to, I really want to pivot back to the dual challenge still exists. So, you know, if you go back to a UN Human Development Index, uh, you know, it's very clear that increases in energy up to around 100 gigajoules ahead leads to an increased human development index, well-being, life expectancy, education, those sorts of things. Today, 80% of the global population lives below that amount. So if you compare in the U.S., the average American consumes about 287 gigajoules per head. And if you compare that to Nigeria, where the average Nigerian consumes about 7 gigajoules per head, basically the average refrigerator in the U.S. consumes nine times more energy than one person in Ethiopia. And, and the U.N. Development Index, you know, 4 million people are going to die prematurely this year due to unclean cooking fuels. So, I do think that the challenge of more reliable, affordable energy um, is still going to be needed to support growth and enable billions of people across the globe to move from low to middle incomes. So it's really the whole world, not just the developed world, that wants energy to be clean as well as reliable and affordable. I think we're seeing a potential shift um, in what's possible to cut you know, in behavior change but I don't think that will address the dual challenge fully. I think we've still got to be working on that. Yeah, no, very well said. R really well said and terrific statistics. And we have to remember that. It, it'll be interesting to see if we are still able to achieve the needs of the dual challenge while ch radically changing our behavior in the developed world. Like, do we do we get on an airplane and fly as frequently as we as we used to? Are these telecommuting patterns more standardized while we're also addressing the, the needs in the developed world, which you articulated so well. I've heard some, one person well, I, forward. Yeah, I do think, I, sorry, Regina, I, I do think this is going to challenge um, potentially a new norm for us, you know, and how we work. I think there, I do think there will be shifts. Right. Well, and carbon molecules don't have passports, right? So wherever they're created, they go into the atmosphere and we have to we have to address that overall. And you very poignantly pointed out the, the lack of access in the, in the developing world. 
yeah, super helpful. I love that. Yeah. Carbon molecules yeah. don't have That's a great way to put it. <laughs> exactly. But I have put, I have heard one uh, hypothesis put forward to say, did we see peak fossil fuel demand in 2019? Because if, if the developed world does meaningfully drop fossil fuel demand by, let's say, 10 million barrels per day, it, while we're still working on the, the dual challenge, you know, you could see the mix changing pretty fundamentally. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I think it's, it's, we're looking at a very different reality than we were even just two months ago. So it yeah. remains to be seen. Last question I want to ask you is you've clearly had a long and productive career, and I won't emphasize the long, but it's 36 years with CP. Yeah. <laughs> you must have started when you were 10. You know, starting as a young <laughs> chemical engineer in BP's Green Lake facility in Victoria, Texas. You are now the first female chairman and president of BP America. As you reflect on your own career and your success, what, what words of wisdom would you offer to our listeners? You know what I, I do? I get asked this question a lot, and um, and you know, of course, I've got to put in my plug that I think for for young um, folks and females, you know, everybody coming out of school, that the the energy industry is just a fascinating industry where you can make a huge difference. Um, you know, I always say, plan it around your purpose. You know. Not what you perceive you need to be successful, but get clear about what your purpose is going to be. And I found that perceptions shift over time that purpose usually doesn't. So, you know, I, I made a decision to work part-time when I was a young mother. And, you know, I did get some feedback that, oh, this could be the end of your career. But my, my purpose at that point was really to be um, a good mother and, um and when I, when I came back um, to work, um, you know, it, I was able to give back in a very, very different way. So, you know, I think over time, um, navigating the different stages, I call them seasons of life, whether it's young mother or empty nester, um, mm -hmm. and, and being able to, you know, have a purpose of making a difference um, has, has helped me immensely. I love I love that that you took a break, and some people did say that was going to be the death of your career, and and look at where you are now. Yeah, I remember, um, you know, just the sentiment. Well, I thought you were serious about your career, but now you're going to work part time, and mm -hmm. you know, it, it. I I would in looking back, I tell people stress less about those kinds of decisions. Make the decisions that are right for you at that point in time. And um, if you look at my career, actually, I, um, I stayed in one place and, and stayed in the same jobs for a much longer period of time during the time that we were raising our young children. Um, and in retrospect, that foundation gave me an unbelievable advantage when it came to moving up and, and running big operations and um, managing big manufacturing types of businesses uh, because I'd been on the front line for so long. And um, I think it turned out to be um, a huge advantage. Did you set so that as your goal? Like you said, I wanted to no. be the CEO. No. That's my vision. No. 
No, I really thought, um, you know, maybe I could, um, you know, be the supervisor of the laboratory someday or something. I mean, it, it was just so <laughs> off base of where I ended up. Um, and, and that's the other thing. I think the energy industry in particular offers such a wide range of opportunities that when people find their purpose and their, um, you know, their true gift, whether it's in engineering or process safety or the digital world or, you know, trading, um, business management, human resources, there's so many ways to apply that that I've had a very diverse set of experiences from running, you know, our, our shipping division to um, designing and um, implementing the downstream audit program. Uh, so it's it's been varied, but very interesting. I share your passion for the industry, but where did your passion for energy come from? Why did you even want to go down the path that you went down? Yeah, well, I, I spent the first 17 years of, of my career making highly hazardous uh, chemicals um, in Green Lake, Texas. But... It, Actually, it was the feedstock into plastics and pharmaceuticals. Um, one of our, you know, some of our big customers were making things like synthetic insulin um, using our processes. And it became very clear to me that, that the things we manufacture enable a better life for people. Um, and so I, I just loved that. And being able to be part of the fabric of the community and being a good employer uh, but also making things that that create better lives for people um, was kind of the, the the grounding for me. And from petrochemicals, then it led into the downstream refining, um, and then you know shipping, where we were building um, you know LNG carriers that are going to bring clean fuels out of the U.S. through the Panama Canal um, to Asia. Um, so I think. Um, it all ties together around making the world better through engineering and, and uh, products. That's, that's awesome. What a great purpose as well. So let's close. You've been so encouraging and so positive. I really appreciate your time and, and your sharing your thoughts. Let's close, Susan, with any last words that you would offer our li listeners, any positive words of encouragement given the, the times we're currently living in. Well, I mean, I think, I think this is a moment of incredible disruption and historic change, but I think that opens up the window for problem solvers and leaders to come forward. So, you know, what I'd say to listeners is, you know, regarding the energy in industry, there's never been a greater need for you than there is right now solving big, meaty problems that are going to help the world. Um, be a better place, and I encourage um, I encourage people to be part of that solution because I think it's hugely fulfilling and and important. Thank you so much, Susan, for your time today. Enjoyed our conversation. Really appreciated it. I did too, Regina. It's it's uh, great to hear your voice and um, try to step away from your screen as much as you can. Pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to seeing you in person on the other side of this pandemic. It'll be great. 
Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on Net Zero Ambitions. A transcript of this episode is currently available on KPMG's Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to KPMG Current Conversations to be notified of new episodes.